This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. My co-host Mark Rotella is out this week, so I'm here on my own to bring you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, William M. Arkin, author of Unmanned, discusses the illusion of perfect warfare. Then PW Marketing Director Brian Kinney highlights PW's upcoming events calendar. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Starting over on the nonfiction side this week, we have a new number one, which is Plunder and Deceit by Mark R. Levin. This is also the number one audiobook, so it's interesting to see it at the top of both the hardcover and the audio bestseller lists. Uh, we don't have a review of this from PW, but uh, anyone who knows Levin and likes his other books will probably appreciate this one too. He's a conservative commentator and in this book he talks about uh, federalism and uh, the reasons that the civil society should fear the ubiquitous federal government. So that's at number one. Moving down the list a little bit and number six is Destiny, Step Into Your Purpose by T.D. Jakes. Uh, He's got this great cover where he's looking directly at you and he wants you to step into your purpose. He's the author of more than 25 books and the bishop, quote unquote, of the popular non-denominational syndicated TV show, The Potter's Touch. And uh, we call this book a conversational sermon proposing a framework for readers to discover their purpose and achieve their full potential. And uh, we say that Jake's passion for life and colloquial style translate effortlessly from screen to page. And this book of hard-nosed spiritual advice is an uplifting rally cry for self-determination. So that's at number six. Moving down the list a little ways, we have Saban, The Making of a Coach. Uh, Sports journalist Monty Burke highlights the career of University Alabama football coach Nick Saban in this affectionate, admiring, and no-holds-barred glimpse into the quest for perfection that has driven Saban to win four national titles in his 19 years as a college head coach. And uh, our review says that Burke has written a winning, definitive portrait of a fascinating character, definitely one to get for all of the football fans out there. Down the list a little bit further, at number 21, we have the Blue Zones Solution, Eating and Living Like the World's Healthiest People. We gave this a starred review. Uh, Nice to see that in PW. And uh, we say that uh, the best-selling author, Dan Bittner, is back with a well-organized game plan for a long and well-lived life. He's been studying the so-called Blue Zones, five hotspots around the globe, where people enjoy optimal health and vitality well into their 80s and 90s, and even as centenarians. And so he and his colleagues tested whether blue zones could be willfully created, targeting communities in California, Iowa, and Minnesota. He reports the results here, and we say they are both impressive and persuasive. He neatly distills enriching lifestyles, environments, and diets into small changes anyone can adopt, and also shares more than 80 pages of recipes designed to be cooked in the average American kitchen. So we say this is a thoughtfully presented and well-written guide from which anyone can benefit. That's number 21. Moving down to number 24 is Voices in the Ocean by Susan Casey, a journey into the wild and haunting world of dolphins. Uh, So Casey was uh, swimming in a bay and happened to encounter a pod of wild dolphins and uh, got kind of fixated on them and embarked on an investigation into the world of dolphins, impressing the reader with her curiosity and thrilling sense of discovery, according to our review. And uh, we say that her book comes as a welcome addition on a topic also explored in some recent documentaries. So for those who would rather sit and read than watch a screen, then this is for you. 
At number 24, we have Team of Teams, New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World by General Stanley McChrystal. Uh, This might look like a military book, but it's actually a business book. He's teamed up with three co-authors who have management experience to construct a narrative about what's different in today's world and what we must do about it. So McChrystal does provide some military information, descriptions of procedure, detailed explorations of the valuable lessons that the military has learned recently about collaboration and the shift from command and control uh, to moving into a more flexible and adaptable way of doing things. Uh, We say uh, in our review, there are only a few non-military examples of how to apply these rules to the business world. So readers not interested in military strategy may leave the book unfinished, but for any other business people, it will get a definite thumbs up. So that's at number 31. Down at number 42, The Man Who Wasn't There, Investigations into the Strange New Science of the Self by Anil Ananthaswamy. Uh, If this sounds familiar, it's because we just interviewed the author last week. If it doesn't sound familiar, then definitely hit our website, publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and take a listen to that interview. It was fascinating. Very, very interesting. So I'm not going to go too deeply into the book here, except to say congratulations to Anil on having it on our bestseller list down at number 42. Right next to it at 43 is Life on the Edge, The Coming Age of Quantum Biology. And uh, this is by John Joe McFadden and Jim Al-Khalili. And we say in our review, it's a challenging task to find ways to bridge two highly technical disciplines for the general reader. But McFadden, a molecular geneticist, and Al-Khalili, a theoretical physicist, attempt it with some success, using the principles of quantum mechanics to explain the intricacies of molecular biology. Uh, Our review says that uh, until more experimentation catches up with the speculation offered here, McFadden and Khalili's interesting ideas are unlikely to be persuasive. And down just a little bit further, uh, at number 45, is The Call, The Life and Message of the Apostle Paul uh, by Adam Hamilton. We don't have a review of this title, but obviously it's an inspirational book for Christians. Uh, He's traced the life of Jesus in past books and uh, finally is moving on to uh, the journeys of Paul, beginning with his conversion and then his work to spread the gospel through what is now Greece and Turkey. So, This will be of interest to uh, anyone who's focused on the history behind the Bible. And uh, just below that, at number 46, is the French Beauty Solution, Time-Tested Secrets to Look and Feel Beautiful Inside and Out by Matilda Thomas. Uh, She's the co-founder of the international beauty company Caudalie, and uh, she shares what she calls simple, natural, time-tested beauty secrets that she learned growing up in France, and any woman can use them to look younger, healthier, and more radiant. I've seen a a couple of different books coming out from French beauty secrets lately, and the French have certainly had this reputation for a couple hundred years now, so uh, any woman who's interested in uh, changing up her skincare regimen might want to check this one out. And finally, down at number 50, we have Avenue of Spies, a true story of terror, espionage, and one American's family's heroic resistance in Nazi-occupied Paris. This is by Alex Kershaw, and uh, he's a World War II historian, author of The Liberator, and he revisits the valorous actions of American surgeon Sumner Jackson, uh, who married a French woman, had a young son, and was living in Paris, and he falsified the medical records of Allied pilots and troops at the American hospital in Paris to aid them in escaping the Nazis. Our review says that Kershaw's sobering look at a family's heroism in one of history's darkest hours vividly shows what war costs in human terms. That's it for the nonfiction list. Moving over to the fiction list, lots of things changing up, but one thing stays the same. Go Set a Watchman by Harper Lee remains at number one. Uh, sold another 82,000 copies this week. Unbelievable. And uh, the year-to-date sales are well over a million at this point, chugging comfortably along. And uh, yeah, that's just in four weeks on the bestseller list. Just what a phenomenon. At number two is the new James Patterson. You don't hear that every day. Usually Patterson gets right to the number one spot. Uh, but this time he's down at number two with uh, Michael Ledwidge, his co-author. And the book is Alert, the eighth Michael Bennett thriller. 
uh, set in New York in the present day and uh, starring Detective Michael Bennett and his old pal, the FBI's Emily Parker. So the two of them are trying to track down criminals who are uh, attempting some sort of psychological terrorism on New York, as well as uh, engaging in other shocking behaviors. So that's at number two, new uh, Michael Bennett thriller from James Patterson and Michael Ledwidge. And moving down the list a little bit at number five is Dragon Bane, the ninth Hunter book by Sherilyn Kenyon. Um, this is a, a spinoff from her uh, Dark Hunter series. And uh, again, we don't have a review of this one, but uh, anyone who's familiar with paranormal romance and urban fantasy will know Kenyon's name. Um, this is one of those books that's designed for series fans only. Basically, if you've already been re- reading the Hunter books, then you will eagerly snap this one up. And uh, obviously, a lot of people have done that. 9,500 copies sold. Um, in the first week out, so uh, plenty of interest in this particular title. Just down the list at number six, uh, Deadly Assets, a Badge of Honor novel by W.E.B. Griffin and William E. Butterworth IV, and uh, this is the gripping 12th Badge of Honor novel, uh, the fourth to be co-authored with uh, Griffin's son, Butterworth. And uh, in this one, Sergeant Matt Payne of the Philadelphia Police Department visits a North Philly diner and uh, you know, tries to get some information about a recent drive-by shooting. But the conversation is interrupted by the arrival of two armed teenagers. And so gunplay ensues and the uh, tension just keeps ratcheting up from there. Our review says that Payne and his cohorts face long odds in a gritty police series that provides sociological comment, but no easy answers. And so that's at number six. Down at number 11 is Wind Slash Pinball, two novels by Haruki Murakami. These were Murakami's first novels. Um, previously, all, the only translations in, into English were still published in Japan, and they've been very hard to find in the West. Uh, Here the Wind Sing came out in 1979, 1980, saw the publication of Pinball 1973. And uh, now they're finally available in one volume, and our review says that Murakami obsessives are in for a treat. Both novels feature digressions on beer, historical oddballs, obscure trivia, and jazz. They're ambient and matter-of-fact in their strangeness, and they might leave casual readers wondering what all the fuss is about. But this may be the ultimate bit of Murakami Arcana, both elevating his other books and serving as two excellent, though somewhat fragile, works in their own right. So that's number 11. 13, we have Alice Hoffman's The Marriage of Opposites. Uh, We say that she finds inspiration for her particular brand of magical realism, this time in the Caribbean island of St. Thomas, and uh, the personal history of a non-fictional woman, a real woman named Rachel Pommier, who lived on the colony in the 19th century. Uh, We say that Hoffman's subject matter and her evocative writing style are a wonderful fit for this moving story, which illuminates a historical period and women whose lives were colored by hardships, upheavals, and the subjugation of personal desires. That's at number 13. 19, we have Magic Shifts, the eighth Kate Daniels book by Ilona Andrews. And uh, this is set in a slightly near future where um, strange magical shifts have happened in our world. And so uh, in Atlanta, uh, people are still getting used to the presence of paranormal entities. And uh, one of them is mercenary Kate Daniels and her mate, the former Beast Lord Curran Leonard. Uh, and they're trying to figure out what to do with their lives now that they've moved away from their pack. We don't have a review of this one, but again, it's uh, definitely one for series fans. If you've been following the uh, Kate Daniels adventures, this book is for you. Slightly below that is In a Dark, Dark Wood at number 22 by Ruth Ware. Uh, We say that this is a solid but somewhat derivative first novel, a psychological thriller. Uh, In a crime writer, Leonora Shaw leads a solitary life in London um, until she goes up to Northumberland to celebrate the impending marriage of a friend she hasn't seen in 10 years. And uh, so with a set of flashbacks, giving a sense that something more is going on than just another hen party, and uh, also from some catty conversations at the party, we get more of a sense of the depth underlying what looks to be a, a fairly straightforward premise. We say that Ware does a competent job ratcheting up the suspense, but the revelations are not as exciting as the build-up. So that's number 22. 
Then we have to scoot down the list a bit to find the next debut, which is uh, The Night Sister at number 34 by Jennifer McMahon. Uh, we say that she combines suspense with fantasy in this convoluted tale about a woman who apparently murders her husband and son before killing herself at the Vermont motel where she grew up. And the story moves not always seamlessly from the present day to flashbacks to 1989 and to the 1950s. We say that McMahon effectively creates an atmosphere of horror, and readers willing to entertain a bit of magic realism in their mysteries may find the Slater's secrets compelling. Uh, so that's 34. And 36 is Reese Bowen's Malice at the Palace, a royal spinous mystery. Uh, it's another historical set in 1930s England. It's the ninth in the series, and we say it's the best one yet. So Queen Mary summons amateur sleuth Lady Georgiana Ronock, a great grander of Queen Victoria, to the palace, uh, where she learns that the king's fourth son is engaged to marry a Greek princess. But uh, all is not what it seems. The legends of ghosts infesting Kensington Palace appear to have some substance, and Georgie sees a strange glow just before she happens upon the corpse of a party girl who uh, was once linked with the prince. So the solution to the murder is both clever and logical, according to our review. And uh, just a little bit below that, at number 37, is Jojo's Bizarre Adventure Part 1. Uh, it's a 1980s manga classic, finally translated into English. And uh, we say it's a cross between The Eye of Argon, a notoriously terrible uh, science fiction story, and Glam Rock. Uh, and our review says that partly because of when it was created, the book tells rather than shows, making it a slog at times. But the target audience of middle school boys will no doubt forgive it for the excitement and showy brawn. At number 38, Let Me Tell You News Stories, Essays, and Other Writings by Shirley Jackson. Um, this is a pretty exciting publication. Jackson was an inspiration to writers from Stephen King to Joyce Carol Oates, dared to look on the dark side and imagine the unimaginable. Uh, there's some fiction here, some nonfiction, uh, mostly uncollected and unpublished work. And uh, we say that not every piece equals the artistry of the lottery, which is her controversial 1948 story. Um, and neither do all the pieces prove as haunting as The Haunting of Hill House, one of her best-known novels. But together they are a multifaceted portrait of the artist as wife, mother, commentator on the comfortable middle class, and a pioneer who explored a world of inexplicable and occasionally frightening phenomena. Uh, we also add that line drawings, quotations, and a foreword by biographer Ruth Franklin enhance this reminder of why Jackson's reputation still flourishes 50 years after her death. So that's at 38. At 39, we have The Dog Master by W. Bruce Cameron, and uh, this imagines a pivotal moment in the history of human-animal relations 30,000 years ago when there are two tribes of primitive human beings and uh, they have to figure out how to domesticate a wild wolf cub. And uh, this is an interesting take on the idea of what might have happened to bring dogs and humans together. And, uh, but we say that except for the depiction of the first dog, there's little in this post-Neanderthal buildings roman that we haven't seen before in books like The Clan of the Cave Bear. At number 40 is Amitav Ghosh's Flood of Fire, the final novel in his Ibis trilogy, and set during the First Opium War in China from 1839 to 1841. There's a lengthy cast of characters, many of them change identities. Relationships and events begun in the first two books are referred to frequently, so this is not one for new readers. However, uh, we also add that this is a really intense book, woven throughout our historical depictions of British imperialism and duplicity, the Indian caste system, tragic suffering and tremendous profits in war, and grim portrayals of vicious naval and land battles. This is an excellent history of the First Opium War and a fitting capstone to the trilogy. And uh, just below it at 41 is The Sword of the South by David Weber. Uh, this is opening up a new epic fantasy series set within his war god universe. And uh, fans of Weber's books will know exactly what they're in for here. We don't have a review of it yet, but uh, this sort of book tends to be kind of review proof. If you know Weber's name, you'll be out there picking it up. 
Lord of the Wings by Donna Andrews is at number 45. This is the endearing 19th Meg Langslow mystery. And uh, we say that this is a cozy that's sure to delight series fans and newcomers alike set in a little town in Virginia that uh, sets out to celebrate Halloween by turning the town into spooky city. But of course, an actual person turns up dead and there's a mystery to solve. And at 48 is Villa America by Liza Klausman, her second novel after Tigers in Red Weather. And uh, this is another novel based on the life of a real person, or in this case, two real people, a real-life couple whose titular villa was the nucleus of 1920s American social life. Uh, Sarah and Gerald Murphy, who uh, set up their home in the south of France and have summer parties on the Riviera that draw much attention. Uh, We say the central conflicts and emotions are relatively slow to emerge and seem a little buried under lavish descriptions of the Murphy's opulent digs, but readers who are looking for a trip back in time will find this an ideal beach read. And finally, down at number 49, Three Moments of an Explosion by China Mieville. Uh, This is a collection of short stories. We gave it a starred review, saying he moves effortlessly among realism, fantasy, and surrealism in this dark and sometimes horrific collection. His characters, whether ordinary witnesses to extraordinary events or lunatics operating out of inexplicable compulsions, are invariably well-drawn. And what the stories have in common is a sense that the world is not just strange, but stranger than we can ever really comprehend. And that's it for our bestseller list. Some exciting stuff on there and uh, definitely a couple books to watch for the next couple of weeks. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, William M. Arkin tells us what perfect war would look like and why we're moving away from it. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Naomi Barron, author of Words on Screen, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Joining me as co-host today is PW senior writer Andrew Albanese. Hi, Andrew. Greetings, Rose. Uh, Today we've got William M. Arkin on the line. His new book is Unmanned, Drones, Data, and the Illusion of Perfect Warfare. Bill, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you very much for having me on. So let's start with what you mean or what others mean by, quote, perfect warfare, unquote. Well, perfect warfare, it's, the, uh, it's our endeavor, and it should, in fact, be our endeavor. But perfect meaning the perfection numerically, the number of civilian casualties that are caused in warfare, perfection physically in terms of the least amount of damage to the civilian infrastructure, and perfection in moral terms, which is to say that you fight a war in such a way that you leave room for the restoration of peaceful relations when the war is over. So if, if you listened carefully, you'll see that the three themes that run through each one of those is distinction, distinguishing between what's civilian and what's military. And if you can't do that, then you can't fight a perfect war. And we've now gotten to a point where we've become so expert at picking out targets and so expert at targeted killing that though it looks like we are achieving the first goal in terms of reducing this number of civilian casualties and also at the same time limiting the physical damage of war, we're completely and utterly missing the third goal, which is fighting a war in such a way that we have any hope of restoring peaceful relations in the future. So in your book, um, you're talking about drones in particular and this idea of targeted killing, but you also observe that only about 5% of U.S. drones are the armed war machines, the Predator-style drones. What's the other 95% doing? Well, they're everything from what we might think of as today's binoculars in the hands of the soldiers on the ground, uh, literally uh, remote-controlled airplanes that are now being allocated to almost every combat unit down to the company level. And these are drones that are capable of flying for 30 minutes or so and maybe going a couple of kilometers to literally look over the hill to see who's on the other side of the hill. And that is the majority. But the, the, the machine, the overall machine that serves the collection of information, whether that be the 
large strategic drones that can loiter for 24 hours or more, or unmanned aircraft or satellites or the NSA's cyber collections, it's all feeding one machine, which I call the data machine. And that one machine is in fact sort of the, the, the guts of our warfare system. And that warfare system all funnels to one purpose, which is finding and killing the target. Bill, I'd like to go back to uh, perfect warfare for a moment, because it seems to me that if we perfect war, won't we eventually wind up with endless war? Uh, how do we distinguish between war and peace? Well, you've just answered your own question. <laughs> we have endless war. We, the, the president of the United States, whether it's George Bush or Barack Obama, has has failed for the last 16 years to promise us anything other than uh, a war of a generation or a long war or, or a war that has no end. And that's one of the problems of the type of war that we're fighting right now is that, indeed, it doesn't really have a strategy behind it other than uh, stopping the next terrorist attack, even if that's possible. But it doesn't have an end in mind in the sense of a strategy and, a, and, a, and a, an endeavor that has political quality to it that might even be hoping to uh, shape the world in such a way that uh, we could look forward after X number of battles or X number of casualties or X number of expenditures that it would end. And so, in fact, we've created this system of remote warfare the remote warfare allows us to be one step removed. The remote warfare stimulates the production of more and more adversaries of the United States. And the remote warfare affects us very little in our day-to-day -day lives. And it is, in fact, the engine that makes it permanent. Wow. Well, you mentioned casualties, and casualties always were what happens in war, right? I'm wondering if we're experiencing new kinds of casualties in this era of drones, etc., psychological casualties? I mean, you seem to be always look, looking at the sky and never knowing when the strike is going to happen. Uh, do you see a, a, a new kind of post-traumatic stress or a new kind of casualty arising out of this kind of warfare? You know, I do and I don't. I, I've read a lot about drone pilots and others who operate the drone system uh, suffering as much as a soldier on the battlefield suffers. And I have to say personally in my interviews and in my observations, I'm a little bit skeptical of that. But maybe it's the case that we have so fewer people who actually have to uh, endure the rigors of warfare today that uh, we have ourselves uh, inflated or deflated uh, what warfare means. And that's not to impugn those who do have to actually go out and fight and sweat, but those who do have to go out and fight and sweat is a minuscule number compared to the industrial era or compared to even Vietnam of just 40 years ago. So to me, the question of casualties is, is a crucial one because it's also how we see casualties. And um, one of the points that I try to raise in sort of both saying this is a non-issue and an issue in the book is to point out that in totality, in, in, in 15 years of fighting since 9-11, maybe 300,000 people have died. That's, that's civilians, military, uh, collateral damage, casualties, unintended civil war. Maybe. 300,000 people have died as a result of U.S. warring. Well, you know, that could have been a bad day at the end of World War II. Hmm. Right. And that's what happened in 14 years. So on, in pure numerical terms, we've gotten better. There's no denying it. Yet at the same time, if each death has greater magnifying effect or each death has more mathematical impact because we can see it or we can or it's, it's it's it gets tweeted or it gets or it gets televised or or it it just magnifies so much more because of the technology of the day uh, and by the way that happens on both sides mm -hmm. it happens by having greater impact not just on 
how the public sees it, but it has greater impact in terms of how the leadership sees it. Because believe me, when a when a Barack Obama is sitting in the White House watching the video of an operation like the death of Osama bin Laden unfolding on video live from a drone that's flying overhead, there's nothing more than to make you feel like you're personally involved and that you have done everything meticulously necessary in order to make that strike as good as it can be. And so this whole idea of what we see in warfare, the, 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 the video elements of this, the, the pictures that are created, uh, shifts our view. And so we speak of casualties as if somehow they're increasing, or alternately we speak of ca- casualties as if somehow they are disappearing. But the reality is that what we don't see is how much they have greater and greater impact each individual. Wow. So uh, you say in your book that we need to contemplate uh, what you say is the cost to society and humanity for even operating in this seemingly near-perfect way. So is this the cost you're referring to, this, this psychological cost? Well, the cost that to me is the one that is the most important to ponder is the one that has been what we have been pondering for the past 6,000 years of warfare. And that is, if we're going to fight a war, how do you fight a war in the, quote, best way? Now, uh, I certainly uh, give uh, my tip of the hat to the pacifist out there who never wants to fight anyone. But most people in America, most people in the world, recognize that war is a part of human activity and it is with us. And it has been with us since day one. And as a result of that, the rules by which we fight war are really crucially important in terms of how we maintain our humanity. And so we've created rules over the years You don't use gas, you don't use biological weapons, you don't use nuclear weapons, you don't use torture, you don't do this, you don't do that. And over time, the social conscience has influenced the the way in which we fight wars. And and that social conscience is continuing to uh, uh, work, even if we don't necessarily catch up with it technologically. And I think that's what's really happened in the last decade and a half. And so as we, as a society, think about war, we're going to have to think about whether or not there are things that we are doing that are undermining that fabric of, of, of fighting war in a way that complies with the so, social conscience, uh, with people's conscience. And, and the key element, the one that I raised at the beginning of this interview, is distinction. The absolute necessity to maintain a distinction between who is civilian and who is military. And we ourselves have diminished that distinction by allowing the CIA to operate as if they are a military, by allowing the military to operate as if they are a CIA, by having non-military forces killing our enemies, and by not ourselves retaining a strict delineation between what's military and civilian, we signal to our enemies that, in fact, the distinction between what is military and civilian is a state decision and not a, a, a moral and inalienable decision that we're not able to uh, change. So you served in Army intelligence for several years uh, in the 1970s. What's changed in military intelligence since then? Uh, and has anything remained the same? Can you, can you talk a little bit about the intelligence game? Well, everything's changed because uh, when I served in the military, uh, it was still in the days of index cards and grease pencils <laughs> and actual things called maps. <laughs> so today, everything is electronic and everything is digital. 
uh, virtually nothing exists on paper. And not only does nothing exist on paper, but nothing exists in a sort of static form. So if you think about the news and you think, okay, I want to know what's the latest news, I go online, I click on my favorite news website, and I get the latest story. And five minutes later, if I click back on the same story, it might actually be a different story. Somebody might have made a correction. Somebody might have made an update. Mm -hmm. That until that story comes out, quote, on paper or on air or whatever it might be, radio, TV, or print, uh, it gets constantly and uh, and uh, endlessly fiddled with. Well, that's our intelligence today as well. And so it's a collaborative, uh, networked system of geo-intelligence uh, pockets, if you will, the enemy in Iraq, the enemy in Syria, the enemy in, in Yemen, the, en the enemy in Pakistan, the enemy in Afghanistan. And we have thousands of people who are constantly working on keeping that intelligence up to the minute. And there's no static point. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a never-ending process. And it serves to essentially drive the process of targeting and killing, but it does not serve the basic function that I can recognize as intelligence when I was even a young man in the military, and that was, what is the enemy doing? What are we doing? What are we thinking? What are they thinking? Are we doing better today, or are we not doing better today? It's so rapid and so variable and so rapidly changing that I'm afraid those questions get lost in the mix. So it sounds like um, there are these priorities that have really shifted, the priority of being able to return to a world where there, we're not at war, the priority of being able to make a, a single concrete assessment of at least the, the current state of things. What, what has replaced those priorities is it is it just this endless game of catch up does it does it only matter that we've updated recently and not what we've updated with well to some degree i guess that's true i mean i i i i credit the military with struggling with the same thing that we struggle with in our in our own lives which is to say that 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 i certainly struggle with too much information between my iPhone and my Kindle and my laptop, my multiple laptops now, mm -hmm. uh, I have way too much and I don't know where it all is and I don't know how to find it and I don't know always how to put it together in the right way. Well, that's our military as well. And one of the things that we forget is how much and how, how rapidly these technologies have changed in the last decade and a half. So if you imagine 2001, when 9-11 occurred, the, the U.S. military had 200 drones. Mm. And that's 11,000 today, mm. 11,000. And, and, and of those 200 drones, even at the beginning of the Afghanistan war, there were people arguing, well, you know, they can't fly at high altitude because it's too cold and they don't have the icing and the weather's going to knock them down and, they don't, and the cameras aren't good enough and the missiles aren't accurate enough. Well, nobody makes those arguments anymore. These are truly, you know, the, the smartphones of our day. They work. But like smartphones, we have to ask ourselves the questions, what do you mean work? They do what? They, 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 they go to bed with us and they, and they make us distance from the people that we're supposed to be closer to and they make us smarter or they make us dumber or we don't really understand what kind of influence they're having on our lives. Well, that's drones. And so they're suffering, I think, from the same uh, uh, information overload and sort of... Uh, 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 I, I don't know what to call it, uh, uh, trauma of information uh, that we're suffering from in our day-to-day in our -day lives. And so I don't necessarily blame the military and say there's some dastardly conspiracy behind why we're fighting these endless wars. I say, oh, yeah, you guys need our help. You need the help of people who are struggling with these questions of technology to begin yourselves to understand what the best way will be for us to assimilate this technology into our military and into our intelligence system to achieve the actual outcomes that we want to achieve. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. 
Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with William M. Arkin, who's the author of Unmanned, who's drawing some fascinating connections between military and civilian struggles with data overload. Um, And speaking of both the military and the civilian side by side, uh, in addition to being an army intelligence, you've also worked with Greenpeace, Human Rights Watch, reporting on civilian casualties from U.S. military actions, and you've consulted with the Air Force. So how do you, what's, what's the single sort of thread connecting all of these things, which from the outside, at least to a civilian like myself, might look very different? Well, I mean, I, 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 first of all, I'll have to admit I'm an oddball, okay? So I, <laughs> I, I would say that I'm the only guy on the planet who has written for both The Nation magazine and Marine Corps Gazette. But it, it, it only means that I can speak both languages. And, and I think that that's part of what is my fascination. We, society, don't speak both languages anymore. The number of people in our society who actually are conversant in and understand the military is, is declining more and more. The number of people who have uh, served in the military is declining. The, our familiarity with uh, the intelligence world and, 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 and the growing secret world is declining. And we see that not only in a sort of the geographic reality of uh, of how Washington has become more and more isolated, uh, a subject that uh, I discussed in a previous book called Top Secret America that I wrote with Dana Priest, but also we see it kind of politically in the sense that uh, we have a presidential campaign and we're not really discussing national security. We don't even have a point anymore where the Republicans want to say we're more martial than the Democrats are. We're more in favor of war, we're more hawkish, or we're more this or we're more that than the Democrats, because in fact, they're pretty much the same. Mm. And so we've gotten to this point in our society uh, where the military has become itself a big, giant black box. And, uh, and, and the more that it's a black box, the more that the big, big brains, whether they be in academia or Silicon Valley, they're not applying their brains to solving the problems of, 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 of what do you do about conflict in, in our society. They're, they're solving the problem of how do you make the synthetic aperture radar even smaller <laughs> so it fits on an even smaller drone. Whoop-de-doo. But they're not solving the problem of, wait a minute, we have this system that seems to be feeding an endless warfare, and yet we can't get off of the treadmill because the system itself has become so... Uh, self-perpetuating and mesmerizing. But I mean, th- this was the plot of the movie Real Genius, you know, which, which is what you know more than more than twenty years ago now. <laughs> I mean, th- it's it's not new that we're you know we're not seeing the forest for the trees. But do you do you really feel like things are just moving so fast that no one's taking a moment to look around? I do, I do, because I think that really what has changed is that the technologies have begun to catch up with our imagination. And so uh, even as I myself have watched the military from 9-11 to the present, uh, I've I've watched uh, sort of the evolution of this technology in such a way that, uh, well, let me tell you a story about the writing of this book. Uh, I have a chapter in the book that deals with sort of the uh, the evolution of sensors and, and, and the evolution from looking at things merely as a visual objects to looking at them as hyperspectral imagery. And in, a, in, in, in simplest terms, hyperspectral imagery is, is looking at something in its molecular structure. And so this breaks it down into so many small pieces, pixels, if you will, that you're able to actually distinguish from space from a sensor, whether or not what you're looking at on the ground is a potato or a carrot. I'm not kidding you. Okay. And that's what we are able to do now with hyperspectral imaging takes an enormous amount of power, takes an enormous amount of computing, but we are able now to look at things in their molecular makeup. 
So I wrote this chapter, and I had a couple of physicist friends of mine read it over and say, you know, have I gotten something wrong in translating this into the English language? And I got a lot of comments, blah, blah, blah. So I sent the book out to various people I know in the intelligence and military worlds for review. And I sent a copy of it to one of the top intelligence officers in the U.S. military, somebody who, in fact is like in the top 20 of the intelligence officers in the U.S. military, a technology-oriented guy, somebody who's in this world of targeting and killing, active duty. And he read the chapter, and he wrote me back, and he said, I, I found it interesting, but it was a little too technical for me. Hmm. Wow. Well, I can only I saw, imagine what the average American would think then. Well, <clears throat> it, but the point is, so then that's why we have contractors. That's why we have... We, we, we contract things out. That's why we don't truly understand what we're doing. The technologists come in the door and they give their PowerPoint briefing and they say, okay, well, you know what? We can put a sensor on this predator drone that's not able only to identify that there's a person on the ground, but it could actually read their tattoos. Hmm. So do you want that sensor? And, and it's like, well, can you, you know, and so then it becomes, well, how cheap can you make the sensor? Because, of course, I want it. But, you know, how cheap can you make it? How small can you make it? How easy can you make it for me to be able to use on a day-to-day basis? And that's how this technology gets adopted. And then you have to ask yourself, how much do you really need? You know, I remember visiting a command center of the military when I was doing my reporting for this book and sitting down with guys who are actually day-to-day watching the video, watching the sensors, processing the data. And one incredibly smart young major who helped me a lot to understand this world said, see, the problem right here is the refresh rate. And I said, what? And he said, the refresh rate. And I said, put it in English. (laughs) And he said, well, we take a picture every two seconds. (laughs) And he said, we don't need a picture every two seconds. We only need a picture every 30 seconds. We're just following the frickin' car. We don't need a picture every two seconds. And by having a picture every two seconds, we are clogging the system with 15 pictures we don't need. So if we took a picture every 30 seconds we'd not only have a better ability to identify anomalous events, but we would reduce the amount of information that we have to process by a gazillion percent. But he says, whoever wants to go up to the commander or go up to the the scientist or go up to the president and say, hey, we can do this job better with worse worse intelligence, Hmm. with, with, with lesser technology. So what do they do instead? In 2009, our military, your military, transitioned from regular definition to high definition. And by transitioning from regular definition to high definition, it increased exponentially the amount of satellite bandwidth it needed to move the the imagery, the amount of uh, hard drive space that it needed to hold the imagery, and the amount of uh, software it needed to process the imagery. Woohoo, we have better pictures. <laughs> but you've got to ask yourself at some point, do you need those better pictures for every mission? Yeah, well, well high def does look amazing. I mean, it's great to watch hockey. It, it, it looks amazing when you're, <laughs> when you're showing off your accomplishments yeah. to your boss, but it's not necessarily, I mean, you know, who's, who's running the cost-benefit <laughs> analysis? Well, we have... It's, it's, yeah, a discussion really about an this. amazing phenomena. And I think that because it has become so complex, these are some basic questions that I can't I just can't even imagine a congressman asking. I mean, we used to have phrases called gold plated and things like that. And we don't even hear those phrases anymore. But now it's information that's gold plated. And so if you can count every uh, curly hair on bin Laden's head, does that make it any easier to target bin Laden than if you couldn't? But so, that, so that becomes then, therefore, the objective. And, and it really has influenced how we have fought our wars, because we are even 
creating intelligence systems now whose objectives are to find enemies out there that we don't even know exist. The unknown unknowns. We have intelligence systems which are now collecting, just looking for anomalous events that might identify people who are then worthy of looking further at to see if they should be targeted. And that's terrifying. That is terrifying. It certainly is. And you know, I, I, I wonder how, if you have any ideas, how we can have a better public discourse about this, because so much of this is, is probably classified. The rest of it is too technical for constituents to understand and even go to their congressperson and talk about. Your book is obviously a step in the right direction, but is this getting away from us? How, how do we get the public involved here and, and more knowledgeable about this? Well, I think it is getting away from us. And, 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 I, and of course, obviously, as a book writer, I think books are important because they can go deeper than uh, a, a newspaper article can or long journalism. And, and so, obviously, I believe in books. I believe in, in spending three years looking at a subject and really trying to wrap your head around it. But the most alarming thing I came out of in my inquiry into drones was that the very people involved in the business itself were as surprised or flummoxed or, um, or uh, ignorant about their own world as I was. And so when I would say to people, wow, I discovered X, they'd say, really? <laughs> and I'm talking to guys on the inside, and they're like learning with me. And I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute, there's something really wrong here. We've now got practitioners who are essentially utilizing these amazing tools, but they're so removed from the tools that they can't even see the implications of what the tools mean. And, 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 and frankly, the, 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 the image that everyone has in their head, because everyone does, of President Obama sitting in the White House Situation Room at the at the conference table, staring at the video screen with all of his advisors around him on the night that uh, bin Laden was killed. That image, rather than sending a comforting message of, of, of civilian control and, and meticulousness, really should, should give people a creepy sense of automaticity. Hmm. That, that we are just watching a machine do its work, and we actually have very little intervention in the outcome. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a wake-up call. It'll be interesting to see where we can go with it next. Well, six people have bought the book so far. So, uh, <laughs> so I can say for sure that uh, the American people are ready to listen. <laughs> We've been talking with William Arkin, and you too can find his book Unmanned in stores right now. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you. Very yes, much. thank you, Bill. Congratulations on the book and on the Star Review and PWT. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Marketing Director Brian Kinney talks about PW's upcoming events. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Anil Swami. I'm author of the book The Man Who Wasn't There. Uh, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Marketing Director Brian Kinney is here to tell us all about what's on PW's events calendar. Hi, Brian. Hi, Rose. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's always great to have you on with your fabulous radio voice. So, um, congratulations on being boosted up to Marketing Director for PW. And uh, we'd love to know what's coming up on PW's events calendar. We've got some in-person events. We've got some online events. We do. We've got a ton of events coming up. Um, obviously, we just came off a lot of events. Um, a, our most previous one was um, ALA in San Francisco, which was a marvelous event. We got to meet a lot of librarians. Mm -hmm. It was um, one of those events that you really get to sit down and talk to and figure out what's happening in the marketplace, what's happening with genres, uh, with publishers, what they're interested in, what they need more information on. Um, so when we do these events, we get to collect a lot of information out in the field and then bring that back to the office. Um, and so with that said, we've got some stuff coming up geared towards some of those, uh, those topics, as well as some um, traditional uh, trade shows that we always attend mm -hmm. year to year. 
Um, and then some brand new stuff coming out, too, that we're really excited about. And we really hope that the people um, listening are going to be really excited about. So, okay, great. So give um, us give us yeah, the skinny. Definitely. So coming up um, on August 20th um, here in New York City at uh, Random House's corporate office, we're going to be uh, doing a PW discussion series. Um, and if you're not familiar with those, we hold those once a month um, at Random House. Uh, and they will cover a variety of different topics. This one is Turning Up Your Profits on Audiobooks. Um, it's going to be moderated by Jim Milliot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will have four different panelists um, from HarperCollins Publishers, HarperCollins um, Audio, uh, Penguin Random House Audio, uh, Audible Inc., and Podium Publishing. Um, so that is on August 20th. So feel free to check that out online. It's on our website. Um, and then after that, um, on September 15th, we are having an event where we will be honoring um, PW Starwatch nominees. So tell us a little bit about the Starwatch program, because I don't right. think we've talked about that on the air before. Well, what the Starwatch program was initially uh, created for was to honor Um, some of the innovative talents that are coming out of the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a way for uh, companies to nominate, you know, um, people that were excelling with inside the publishing industry, doing something new, doing something creative, something fascinating. Um, And so we just wrapped up the nominations. We'll be holding the event um, on September 15th. That's a Tuesday from 6 to 9 um, at, at Pergola NYC. Okay, sounds great. Um, And then after that, we've got Frankfurt Book Fair, um, which is the largest book fair. We're always really excited to attend that. We do the show dailies there. Mm -hmm. Um, Those show dailies will be online for anyone to take a look at. So if you can't attend the event in Frankfurt, you can get all the news straight from the um, trade show floor through PW's show daily. And that is going to happen on October 14th through the 16th. Um, So after Frankfurt, we're really excited to be um, attending for the first time the American Association of School Librarians Conference. That's happening on November 4th. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be in Columbus, Ohio. So if you're in the area, feel free to check us out. We will be there. So after that conference, on December the 2nd here in New York City, um, Publishers Weekly, in association with the Bologna Children's Book Fair, We'll be hosting the very first Global Kids Connect conference. Um, So, Rose, this conference is really, it's geared towards editorial, marketing, sales, and rights professionals for the publishing industry. Uh, We've kind of deemed this the future success models for children's publishing. Great. Um, And so what we're going to be doing is going to be a full day of dialogue, featured speakers, panels. Um, and then lunch, some, um, some daytime events. Uh, so we're really looking forward uh, to discussing you know, some of these vital topics, such as like the global market trends and forecasts, you know, what, what kind of books are selling abroad um, and in what countries. Uh, we'll be talking about buying and selling in Asia, some practical guidance on how to really do business um, in that pivotal market, mm-hmm. building brands globally, um, featuring like case studies for some of the big players out in the marketplace. Um, we'll be uh, partnering with uh, global and digital retail and social media channels um, and talking about the reach it has internationally on their customer bases. Um, so these are some of the things we'll be talking about during this full day uh, during the Global Kids Connect conference here in New York City. Well, that sounds very exciting for people on that end of the industry. Definitely. If you guys want some more information about it, feel free to go to globalkidsconnectcon.com for more information on that. All right. And uh, there's one more event that you haven't mentioned. Oh, yes. Because uh, you're, you're leaving the best for last, <laughs> Yes, right? definitely. Saving the best for last. If for some reason you can't be in New York City or Columbus or Frankfurt, we have a lot of online events as well, too. One of those events coming up on September 21st is our LGBT webcast, where we'll be talking about LGBT titles uh, for those readers. All right. Well, I, I'm personally looking forward to that since you asked me to host it. Yes, definitely. We're looking forward to it. It's uh, it's going to be exciting. We've got a couple of interesting specialty presses lined up for it, and uh, I think we're going to have some good conversations 
especially about what uh, maybe the larger publishers can learn from the small presses that have been doing this kind of publishing for a while, know how to reach an LGBTQ audience, know how to promote books with LGBTQ content. Um, I I think it's going to be very useful and very interesting. Well, with you, Rose, it's always a good conversation. Oh, well, so thank you. We'll I, be looking forward to it. I do my best. And thank you for coming on and giving us the lowdown on what's coming up. It sounds like there are some great events out there. Definitely, Rose. Thank you so much for having us on. And um, hopefully we'll see you guys out in the field then. Feel free to come by and say hello if you're in the area. Yeah. Anytime PW's got a booth, come by, say hi, and tell them you love the radio show. Because we do always love to hear that. <laughs> Thanks very much, Brian. It's thank always you, great to Rose. have you on the show. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Michael J. Martinez, author of The Venusian Gambit. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another great author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check these sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 